One question that might be on your mind is, uh, why should we look at a subject like this and not other social or political issues? You know, there are some social and political issues where the church is best served in her mission of creating worshipers maturing in Christ to remain quiet. If the church finds every issue to be a moral one, then the church can easily become nothing but an expression of political philosophy. And that happens in both left-leaning and right-leaning churches. But there are some issues where the church cannot remain quiet. The reason is that they are first of a moral nature, and only secondarily are they of a political one. The issue of racial equality, the issue of abortion, the issue of euthanasia, all of these strike at the heart of what it means to be human, and the church must speak out. For a long time, abortion was only secondarily political, since there were political part leaders from all parties that had a variety of views on abortion. More recently, as abortion advocates and opponents have divided along party lines, it seems to be viewed, particularly by young adults, as completely a political issue when nothing could be further from the truth. We'll get into the nuts and bolts of that at the end of this message. Abortion and the sanctity of human life is the most important social issue and the most divisive. God has something to say on this subject and I would not be fulfilling my duty to you as your pastor if I were to ignore the issue. I really love what Martin Luther actually had to say when he said this, if I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. So, we have to ask the question, what does the Bible say? about the sanctity of life. In fact, this is the question we ask here at East White Oak Bible Church, where Bible is our middle name, <laughs> all the time. It's one of our vital signs to be rooted in Scripture, to think, what does the Bible have to say to us? And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139. We'll look at four verses here, Psalm 139, then we'll look at a few others, but for now, let's look at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Please have a seat. So God, according to verse 13, was working on you from the moment you were conceived. You formed my inward parts. It's actually the Hebrew word for kidneys, which in Hebrew was the center of emotion and moral sensitivities. We often use that here in the West as the heart, but in the, in the, in the Hebrew mind, it was the kidneys. You literally weaved my parts in my mommy's tummy. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Verse 14, God's working on you and creating your emotional center and your physical body in the womb is awe-inspiring. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In the first hour, there was a description of how babies are moving around in the womb. And my son, Joel, is a, a researcher in tissue engineering and bone development. One of the things that he and his lab and others have discovered is why babies move around in the womb so much. The reason they move around is if they did not, their bones would not develop. It is purposeful on God's part to create such a dynamic system by which bones grow. This has actually changed the way in which orthopedic uh, people do uh, bone repair now. So you'll notice that they don't have casts on as long, or they actually have people start physical therapy much earlier than they used to. And the reason is because of this research that has shown that bones require movement in order to grow. Um, verse 15, I was not without God when in the womb. You know, there's a lot we don't know about human fetal development, though we have learned so much in the last 49 years since Roe versus Wade, it isn't even funny. But one of the dimensions of God's amazing world is that the more you know, the more you figure out that you don't know. Um, Literally ask any uh, PhD person in any field, and whether they're an atheist or not, ask them, what is your field? You tell them the field. They tell you the field. And then you say, do you know a lot about that? And they will always, I've never had one say, yeah, I've figured it out. I know it all. No, they, they shake their head almost in shame to say, really, what I've learned is how much I don't know. That is how God has constructed his marvelous universe. I was not without God when in the womb. God is actively at work in the womb of every mother. David is saying no matter what we, what we know, God knows everything in the womb. He knows everything. Verse 16, God sees you and me in the womb. This is nothing less than divine recognition of our personhood and joy about it. God takes delight in it. He sees us when we were unfinished vessels. 
Now, of course, David even goes beyond that in the verse when he actually talks about uh, God at work in us even before we existed. But don't miss the first point of the parallelism that from the moment we begin to exist, God sees us. We're here. (laughs) We're actually real. So God cares for each individual person from the moment of conception. Secondly, God is the maker of the baby in the womb. Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 11 verse 5, as you do not know the way of the, the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So this is actually a verse that could have two possible uh, intentions. Maybe the, the, the writer is saying, you don't know in which the, the way in which uh, how God brings spirit and body together. It may also be that you don't know the way in which God does this to bring development and growth. You'll, you'll study it and you'll never exhaust it. Either way, what's being pointed out here <laughs> is very clear that God's the maker of the baby in the womb. How about Isaiah 44, verses 2 and 24? Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Do you see how he goes from the littlest individual to the vastness of the universe? God is active and the maker of it all. God appoints his servants while they are still fetuses, while they are still embryos while they are still in their mother's womb. Isaiah 49, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. Jeremiah 1.5, a verse that was used in the first hour. Before I finished forming you in the womb, I knew you through and through. The apostle Paul In Galatians 1, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. God calls babies in the womb, babies. Luke chapter 1 verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, John the Baptist, the baby, it says, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Fascinatingly, Luke has Jesus, uh, when Jesus has the children are being brought to Jesus, Luke uses the exact same word, translated baby in Luke 141, in Luke 18.15, translated here in the ESV, as infants. They were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. So whether they're outside the womb and being brought to Jesus or inside the womb and praising Jesus... They're babies. They're real people. God appoints his servants while 
they are still in the womb. Babies are babies, not just when they are wanted. There's a lot of people today who are wanting to say that, yes, it's a baby, if you decide or want it to be a baby, and it's not a baby if you decide or don't want it to be a baby. That kind of puts you in the position of God, doesn't it? A baby is a baby is a baby. It's either a baby or it's not, and the Scripture is declaring it is a baby. Here's our conclusion from this study of Scripture. God the Creator declares that human beings begin at conception. Therefore, abortion is the killing of a human being. This has been the historic position of the church and of Western civilization for centuries. Now, it's not without some fits and starts. There were some times where you, we should be embarrassed, frankly, of the evangelical church's t- take on abortion, particularly in the 1970s. It was atrocious. But historically, the church of Jesus Christ has very clearly sounded a clear note that this conclusion is the teaching of Scripture. Consider, for example, Tertullian in A.D. 197. don't know if you can read this, but it's his book called The Apology. He says, For us, murder is once for all forbidden, so even the child in the womb. Yet while the mother's blood is still being drawn on to form the human being, it is not lawful for us to destroy. To forbid birth is only quicker murder. Did you catch that? To forbid birth is only quicker murder. It makes no difference whether one takes away life once born or destroy it as it comes to birth. He is a man who is to be a man. The fruit is always present in the seed. Um, Tertullian lived about a hundred years after the Apostle John. So we're, we're talking really close to the writers of Scripture here, aren't we? Here's the original Hippocratic Oath. I will follow that method of treatment which according to my ability and judgment I consider for the benefit of my patients and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. I will give no deadly medicine to anyone if asked nor suggest any such counsel. Furthermore, I will not give to a woman an instrument to produce abortion. The Declaration of Geneva, adopted by the General Assembly of the World Medical Organization in 1948, said, I will maintain the utmost respect for human life from the time of conception. So, this has been the consistent testimony up until our era, okay? Up until our era. Does that mean that there wasn't abortion? No, there was does not mean that in some sec- portions of the world, abortion flourished. No, there, that, that was true. In fact, there were lots of times when in uh, the early uh, Roman period where Christians were marked by the fact that they took care of babies who were left exposed out in the fields because people just frankly didn't want their children. And Christians were known for their taking them home and raising them. So let's think about the biological evidence and the implications 
that both the scripture teaching and these biological evidences will reveal. The biological evidence and implications. Uh, the evidence that a baby, from the moment of conception, is in fact a baby, is undeniable. In fact, even pro-abortion people are now coming to this conclusion and are changing their arguments. Instead of only saying it's a blob of tissue, which they still say, and which of course is a lie, they are now adding this, something like this. Even if it is human life, it does not have the right to exist inside another person without that person's consent. They're saying things like this, and this is just absolutely crazy to me given the fact that we're all here because people have given birth, right? I mean, that's why we're all here, but to hear the pro-abortion side tell it, this is what they say, giving birth is so dangerous, so difficult, so painful and so harmful that no person should have to endure that without consent all along the way. And if at any point it gets hard for you and the, you can withdraw your consent and the right is yours to remove the baby from the womb, that is paramount. And any attempt to inhibit abortion is simply the government forcing women to have children. That is the argument that is being made today. And notice the subtle change. No longer are they saying it's just a blob of tissue because frankly, that's unsustainable. What they have to do is change their arguments. Yeah, it is a baby, it is human life, but we can say it doesn't matter. I want to share with you the testimony of a fellow by the name of Jerome Lejeune. He was the discoverer of the chromosomal cause of Down syndrome. A number of years ago now, he testified, he's been, he's, he died long ago, but he testified in a very famous test tube baby custody case about whether or not these babies in the test tube were in fact people, persons, were in fact human beings. He said this in his testimony, um, <clears throat> we now have proof, and here he is with a, with a Down syndrome child, we now have proof that there are not spare parts in which we could take at random, that babies in the womb are not experimental material we could throw away after using it, they're not commodities we could freeze and defreeze at our own will, they are not property that we could exchange against anything. An early human being inside the suspended time, which is the can, he's talking about the test tube babies, cannot be the property of anybody because it's the, it's the only one in the world to have the property of building himself. And I would say that science has a very simple conception of man. As soon as he is conceived, a man is a man. And one specific way in which Lejeune testified about this is that the very young human being, just after fertilization, after it has split into two cells, it splits into three. Because curiously, he says, we do not split in two, four, eight, and continue like that. At the beginning, we don't do that. He says, we split in two cells of roughly equal dimension, and then one of the two splits in two. There is a moment in which inside the zona pellucida, which is kind of a plastic bag, we have a stage in which there are three cells. 
After that stage of three cells, it starts again. It comes to four. It continues by multiples of two. And, and geneticists have noticed that there, there's ways that they can only do things by three. They can't do it by two, four, five, or six. They got to do it by three, which harkens back to this individualization that happens at a three-cell level. From the moment we are three cells, we have what Lejeune terms individualization. He says this makes the difference between a population of cells which is just tissue culture and an individual which will build himself according to his own rule, or we might say according to God's knitting him together in the womb. So that's a little bit of the biology. Let's think about the implications of abortion on demand. I want to just share a couple of these. One is sex selection abortion, the discrimination worldwide against women being born has resulted in the past 50 years, listen to this, worldwide, of 200 million fewer women born than men. 200 million fewer women than men. And we call abortion on demand as a women's rights issue? It's exactly the opposite. One study in India from the 1980s studied 8,000 abortions and found that 7,999 of them were female. When the one-child policy was being pressed in India, there were 153 males born for every 100 females. Just looking at Ellie and Jothi and their girls. <laughs> so precious. And then there's what's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, right? Before people uh, doing in vitro fertilization, they will custom craft their child to be free from various cancers or Alzheimer's or even for specific characteristics of athletic prowess or what have you. This is the product of the loss of a sanctity of life. There are issues of genetically carried illnesses where people are doing amniocentesis in order to kill children who may or may not have those maladies from spina bifida, to Down syndrome, to hemophilia, to cystic fibrosis. The nation of Iceland bragged just a couple of years ago that they had eliminated Down syndrome from their population. Do you want to know how they did that? They killed every baby in utero that may or may not have, but gave an indication that they had Down syndrome. You know, you can eliminate a lot of things when you kill everybody. <laughs> if everybody on earth is dead, how much crime would there be? What kind of horrors are we unleashing here? 
aborting 100% of the babies who may or may not have Down syndrome. And then there's the issue of race selection. The history of abortion advocacy is filled with the horror of eliminating black people as undesirable. And the same thing happens today. It's just described in more polite terms of, we're here to help you and to do this for your own good. The net effect is identical. We have fewer black people because they are aborted at four times the rate of white people in our nation. The CDC reports in the most recently reported year that I saw, non-Hispanic black women accounted for 38% of all reported abortions, but only 12% of the total population are black. We can also see this, that there are in some cities, like New York City, there are more abortions performed than there are live births. Among, black, among the black population. Then there's infanticide, the killing of people who um, are babies, born. Just two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, there was a video of a woman in New Mexico who tossed her newborn baby in a dumpster and fortunately, there were dumpster divers six hours later who heard the cries of the baby and rescued the child. Now, <clears throat> I mentioned the scientist Jerome Lejeune. I want to share with you that, of course, just because you're a scientist doesn't mean you're wise. Just because you've made a remarkable discovery doesn't make you wise on every count. For every Jerome Lejeune, there are others who are uh, diabolical on the other side. Here is James Watson and Francis Crick, the discoverers of DNA. Here's what they say. If a child were not declared alive until three days after birth, then all parents could be allowed the choice only a few are given under the present system. The doctor could allow the child to die if the parents so choose and save a lot of misery and suffering. I believe this view is the only rational, compassionate attitude to have. His partner in the DNA discovery says, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic development, <clears throat> that if it fails these tests, it forfeits the right to live. It feels a little bit like we're back in the Soviet gulag or the concentration camps of Germany. And then there's the issue of euthanasia, which is the killing of the old elderly or the infirmed. So we've got sex selection, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, genetically carried illness, race selection, infanticide. Now we've got euthanasia as a consequence of loss of the precious awareness of the sanctity of human life. Killing people who quote-unquote have no quality of life, and that that just drives me crazy because to determine a quality of life is somebody's got to be a judge, don't they? What happens if they judge you don't have quality? Raymond Duff, Yale School of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics, who lived for the last 10 years of his life immobilized due to a series of strokes, said 
the public has got to decide what to do with vegetated individuals who have no human potential. He said that before he had the stroke. Not sure he was ready to say it afterward. Um, he and a partner had written an article in Newsweek magazine several years ago, and there was a letter to the editor from a woman by the name of Sandra Diamond. Here's what she wrote. I'll wager, you know, this article is about how vegetables, we just need to do them a favor and kill them. Sandra Diamond wrote, I'll wager my entire root system and as much fertilizer as it would take to fill Yale University that you have never received a letter from a vegetable before, but much as I resent the term, I must confess that I fit the description. As defined in the article, Shall This Child Die? Due to severe brain damage incurred at birth, I am unable to dress myself, toilet myself, or write. My secretary is typing this letter. Many thousands of dollars had to be spent on my rehabilitation and education in order for me to reach my present professional status as a counseling psychologist. My parents were told also 35 years ago that there was, quote, little or no hope of achieving meaningful humanhood for their daughter. Have I reached humanhood? Compared to doctors Duff and Campbell, I believe that I have surpassed it. This morning, I look out on our congregation and see Mark Warren. I shared Mark's Christmas letter with the missionaries in the Solomon Islands this past week on that Zoom. They were so smitten by Mark's letter, so encouraged by it, that they said, send us a copy. We want it for every one of our missionaries. The father of situation ethics was a horrible man, as you'll see in the second quote, but he's right about the first one. To speak of living and dying, therefore, encompasses the abortion issue along with the euthanasia issue. They are ethically inseparable. You want to kill babies before they're born? They'll come after you. They will. And they'll have a good name for it, too. We're doing it for your own good. Here's a horrific statement by Fletcher. People have no reason to feel guilty about putting a Down syndrome baby away, whether it's put away in the sense of hidden in a sanitarium or in a more responsible, lethal sense. That's just, that's just fancy words for saying, or killing it. It carries no guilt, Fletcher says. You can just be free of guilt from that. True guilt arises only from a, an offense against a person. And a Downs is not a person. Father of the greatest philosophy that ethicists today all over this country embrace the number one philosophy embraced in this country, situation ethics. Do you see where it leads, my friends? Dear brothers and sisters. Now I know that there are all kinds of yes buts, and I want to address a few of them. And this morning, I'm particularly wanting to address those of you who are 30 and under because you have been raised within the context of saying that this is not a big issue. 
pretty much everybody over 30 in this room, I'm preaching to the choir. You're going, yeah, preach it, Burkle. But people that are younger are going, I don't know. I got some problems with this. And it is you I want to address right now. What about financial and future considerations? The argument here is that pro-lifers are only concerned about stopping abortion and not at all concerned about caring for people. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I just encourage you to go make a visit to Living Alternatives where you would see that lived out. Or visit with any pastor of any gospel preaching church in our community. I can, I can safely say that that is not the problem. But even if it were, what is money and the upset of our plans compared to a human being? Of course people get in the way. You're married, if you're married, guess what? Your spouse, once in a while, is going to get in your way. You have children, once in a while, they're going to get in your way. And do you know that that is a design of God to shape you, not to be king of your realm, but to be a slave in his? Second response that I want to give to this is just because a person doesn't agree with your solution to a problem does not mean that they are uncaring or do not have solutions to problems. The liberal media wants to tell us that the only solution to problem pregnancies, difficult pregnancies, hard pregnancies, is abortion. And just because we don't agree with that solution means we are uncaring? Nothing could be further from the truth. Second, yes, but. Men have no right to offer an opinion on abortion. Some of you are saying, how dare you? You're a part of the patriarchy that's caused all this problem. Why are you as a man speaking? This is all about women and the right to their own bodies. And when a man speaks a pro-life message, this is abusive of women. That's how the argument goes. Feminists make birth sound like it's the hardest thing that's ever happened on the planet, and abortion is the easiest, most convenient thing in the world. And they assert that a baby has no right to live in your body if you don't want it to. How do we respond to this? First, Abortion is not a feminist issue any more than slavery was a slave owner issue. The right to choice is to conceive or not. After that, any right to privacy is superseded by the right to life of another individual, the baby. And anyone, male or female, is called by God to speak out on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. And I would say it is peculiarly a man's duty to speak out on such things. Consider what Psalm or Proverbs 24, 11, and 12 says. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. 
Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? There is in the Old Testament in particular an issue of what is called blood guilt. And there's all kinds of measures that are taken to avoid blood guilt where there's murders that are unsolved. You have these cities of refuge and all this kind of stuff. I won't go into the detail of it, don't have time. But blood guilt's a big deal in the Bible. I want you to think about this. What is crying out? You know, in Genesis, God said he heard Abel's blood crying out. What does 63 million sound like? And you're saying that a man shouldn't talk about that? You know, on March 6, 1857, Chief Justice Roger Taney, writing for a 7-2 to majority, declared that the U.S. Constitution considered blacks a subordinate and inferior class of beings. By the logic of feminists who say that men have no voice on abortion, no one except slave owners should have been allowed to speak on what should be done with their property. In fact, one very eloquent civil rights activist, activist said these things about that. So this is an argument that I'm making, and it's not my argument alone on this. It's done by civil rights activists as well. There are those who argue that the right to privacy is of higher order than the right to life. That was the premise of slavery. You could not protest the existence or treatment of slaves on the plantation because that was private property and therefore outside your right to be concerned. The Constitution called us three-fifths human and the whites further dehumanized us by calling us and he's saying the N-word there. It was part of the dehumanizing process. These advocates taking life prior to birth do not call it killing or murder. They call it abortion. They further never talk about aborting a baby because that would imply something human. Fetus sounds less human, therefore can be justified. What happens, this civil rights activist said, to the mind of a person and the moral fabric of a nation that accepts the aborting of the life of a baby without a pang of conscience. What kind of a person and what kind of a society will we have 20 years hence if life can be taken so casually? It is that question, the question of our attitude, our value system, and our mindset with regard to the nature and worth of life itself that is the central question confronting mankind. Failure to answer that question affirmatively may leave us with a hell right here on earth. And that was said by the Reverend Jesse Jackson in 1977, before he ran for president and wanted to get the endorsement of the Democratic establishment. Aren't there more important issues? Some people will ask. Issues like economic fairness, income equality, racial and gender equality, environmental harms. And the answer is no. 
There's no issue if the sanctity of life is not upheld. Life precedes liberty in the pursuit of happiness. Does this mean we should ignore other issues? Of course not. But if we're talking about priorities here, the issue of life is way more important. And then people will ask the the hard cases. What about cases of life? Uh, uh, what about cases of rape and incest? Let me say very bluntly to you. The babies conceived from rape and incest are people. They are not hard cases. If you met them, you would see them indistinguishable from yourself. They are you. And the scripture seems to be very clear on the point. Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. I have no doubt that in some cases, for sure, those who are guilty of rape and incest are deserving of capital punishment. But the wrong person is being killed. The wrong person is being punished. There's uh, some beautiful websites of children who are the product of rape and incest where they talk about the value of their lives. I'd urge you to just look that up. Some pretty powerful stories. Here's another one. Um, The world is vastly overpopulated. People are destroying the planet. If that's true, shouldn't abortion be a minor concern or attention paid to making contraception easily available? Well, I'm going to be giving a series of messages after, in, after our one in Philippians on Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, we're going to go back to the beginnings. And um, I am going to have a special addressing of this question of the quote-unquote overpopulation of the earth. The earth is far from overpopulated. People are producers, not drains on the flourishing of either humanity or the planet. And China, India, Japan, and Russia are all finding this out, have they, as they have discovered, likely too late for their civilizations, that government promotion of population control, largely through abortion, has destroyed their future. Did you know that in Japan today, one out of every eight homes is vacant? because there's nobody to put them there. The Japanese even have a name for it. They actually, at weddings, you can hire people to come to your wedding to be quote-unquote relatives so that you have a nice picture of a lot of people at your wedding. They are at the forefront of robot technology because they have no one to care for their elderly. The world is not overpopulated. All you have to do is Google any of these countries, China, India, Japan, Russia, with the words population and problem, and you'll go, whoa, I didn't know that. People are never a problem. God has never rescinded his command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and be a good steward over it. Here's one that's tossed out there quite a bit by the opponents of uh, the pro-life position. Why does the Bible give less punishment for causing miscarriage than for causing the death of a person outside the womb? 
and they quote Exodus 21, uh, verses 22 through 24. And let me unpack that for a moment. Look at over on the right, you'll see the King James Version. If men strive and hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished. According as the woman's husband will lay upon him, he shall pay as the judges determine. Uh, What they've done is they've taken an interpretation of that verse and they all quote the King James Version. I can't believe pro-abortionists are King James only people. Um, And, and, they, and, they, and, and what they say is that this verse means that the child dies and they pay a fine. That is not what the verse is saying, as you can see by comparing it with the ESV. And you'll see that if you, study, if you just parse out the, what the words no mischief follow means, it means the child doesn't die. When men strive together, hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. In other words, causing a premature delivery is the issue. Well, you don't kill somebody for that. But if they were to die, then the issue of manslaughter comes into play. It's not a premeditated murder. And the same rules apply. In fact, this text actually affirms that the baby in the womb is a person with the same rights exactly as for others. So don't let these guys fool you. When they start quoting scripture, guess what they're doing? They're manipulating it, just as Satan did with the Lord Jesus when he made those temptations. What about politicians who use abortion as a fundraising lever? You know, there are so-called pro-life Republicans and so-called pro-choice Democrats, and almost all of them could care less about the abortion issue. I don't know if you know that. Politicians really don't care. But they will do say that they care as a way to fundraise against the other side. So when something happens that's positive for the pro-life side, there are tons of fundraising letters from Democrats saying how much they need money to fight the evil Republicans. And when something happens to favor the pro-abortion side, Republicans move into high gear, writing letters to fundraise against those wicked Democrats. There may be a few on both sides who really care about abortion, and I'd say there's far more on the pro-abortion side than the pro-life side. But by and large, forget about a solution coming from politics. In late 2015, there were a series of undercover videos showing that Planned Parenthood was taking the body parts of babies and selling those body parts to research facilities. They were doing the abortions not for the best procedure for the safety of the mother, but to preserve as many body parts as they could to gain as much money as they could. And less than 18 months later, in early 2017, After campaigning heavily on pro-life issues, we had a Republican president, a Republican majority in the House, and a Republican majority in the Senate. What happened to Planned Parenthood? Nothing. Nothing happened. But the guy that did the undercover videos 
has faced criminal charges, has been enjoined by a federal judge not to produce more videos, was ordered to pay the National Abortion Federation's legal fees in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, and this heroic undercover journalist doing what the law should have been doing anyway was sued in civil court and ordered to pay millions of dollars in judgments to Planned Parenthood. In other words, the good guy whistleblower was punished while people profiting off of aborted baby parts went scot-free and there is nothing preventing their continuing the practice. Meanwhile, the Republicans in government who tell us they are pro-life do absolutely nothing about the evil practice of selling aborted body parts. Well, is there hope with the Supreme Court? Todd mentioned that earlier today and gave four possible solutions. Despite many on all sides of the abortion debate believing that the court's going to strike down Roe versus Wade, I do not anticipate that happening. I hope I'm wrong, but I've had my hopes dashed by the Webster decision, other decisions in the past, while, which while ruling in some cases in a pro-life way on a narrow issue, cemented Roe as the law of the land. No, I don't think we look to the courts for solace here. As the courts are only going to go as the nation goes. In my personal view, we are far deeper in need of revival before we'll ever see a court that will look upon these matters with the justice that is required. So what do we do? Well, I think it behooves us to be as politically engaged as we can be, of course. I'm not saying we should give up. We keep pressing. And where we have representatives who say that they are pro-life, we need to press them. We need to press them hard on this issue as though lives are at stake, because guess what? They are. A number of years ago, I was at a missions conference in seminary, and the, the speaker, J. Herbert Kane, old guy, he was in his 90s, he'd been a missionary for decades in India. He gave a 45-minute talk. For the first 40 minutes, he explained all the reasons why an Indian couldn't uh, from India, could not become a Christian. By the end of those 40 minutes, I was absolutely convinced it's impossible, it can't happen. Cannot happen. I mean, he was unbelievably eloquent. Last five minutes, he says, open your Bible to Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. What is our only hope? Our only hope, my friends, is a recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a revival of earnest interest in the glory of God. That we be, like Julie shared earlier, man, I am on fire for Jesus, and I want to make him known everywhere we go. That's our only hope, friends. Because every societal transformation, whether it was the American Revolution or the slavery question during the Civil War, came in the aftermath of great revival fire. That's our only hope. Only the gospel can change our view that sex is a right and that it can be exercised without consequence. 
It is this idea of sex as a right without consequence that is why the LGBT community, the feminists, the hedonistic playboy males, and the government are all agreed on being pro-abortion. It is because they believe that sex without consequence is not only possible, it is a right. And this is why many young people abandon the faith of their parents. They've bought into this lie. And only the gospel can change that. Only the gospel can forgive all of our horrors, every one of our horrors. Only the gospel can change that. You can't pass a law to get you right. Only Jesus can. Only the gospel can make an individual change from a rebel, from a person who shakes their fist at God to one who says, God means more to me than life itself. Only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can transform societies toward God's priorities. And only the gospel can bring the recovery of the authority of Scripture in all of life, where everybody's asking first to any question, what does the Bible say? And it is that to which I urge you, my brothers and sisters, to not be ashamed of the gospel. That is the power of God. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time where we've considered this important issue and all of the issues surrounding it. There's lots. Lord, help it that we would have such a laser-focused passion for the glory of God and the making known of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would see that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Maybe they've been running away. Maybe they've been fighting against uh, your Holy Spirit's call on their lives. Help them to surrender to that call right now. Where there are people with questions, help them to talk to one of us pastors or one of our elders that they may find the grace and the help that they need. And for that person who's feeling under the weight of their sin and can't figure out a way out from under it, help them to see that if we confess our sins, Jesus, you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news. In Jesus' name.